2021, a user with the pseudonymous username Luo Huazhong posted to the Chinese web forum Baidu Taiba a summary, partially in the form of a narrative, of his reasons for engaging in what he called Tangping, or lying flat. His post was entitled, Lying Flat is Justice, and it explained why he, a 26-year-old man, quit his job at a factory, adopted a minimalist lifestyle and essentially opted out of the life path that was offered to him as a 20-something growing up in China in the 2020s. According to his post, he pays his now comparably meager bills by doing odd jobs and pulling down tens of dollars worth of yuan from his savings each month, and he consequently has almost complete freedom of time. He says that he spends his days reading philosophy for personal enjoyment and fulfillment. He rode his bicycle about 1,300 miles, which is around 2,100 kilometers, from Sichuan to Tibet. And now he lives back in his hometown on the eastern Chinese coast, eating two meals a day and enjoying life by all indications. This concept of lying flat, which he defines as being a sort of low-desire, low-exertion lifestyle, in which one sticks with simple things and thus experiences less stress and has fewer expenses, dramatically contrasts with what's become known as the Chinese dream, which is the term that China's leader, Xi Jinping, began to promote back in 2012, before he was the country's leader, and which is associated with the rejuvenation of the country through hard work, ascension to the economic middle class, and the creation of generational wealth that one's kids and grandkids can benefit from. The Chinese dream is similar in many ways to the concept of the American dream, which likewise dangles the promise of economic flourishing and generational wealth, often at the expense of working hard. And almost always, that means working hard from the beginning of one's adulthood all the way through life until retirement, at which point, ostensibly at least, one will have enough wealth to be doing okay, and if nothing else will then be taken care of by social safety nets the economic light at the end of the hard-work-constructed tunnel. The concept, in both cases, is also heavily reliant on a type of nationalism, as one is incentivized to work hard throughout one's entire life, in part based on the promise of personal enrichment, but also the moral correctness of improving one's society. You're encouraged to make sacrifices, so that your country, which stands for things you believe in, can get better for you and your fellow citizens, and so it can continue to represent causes and ideologies that you believe in from a stronger and stronger international position over time. Luo's position here, then, is that one should check out of that system, because it represents endless sacrifice and no consequent life satisfaction. You are promised that your efforts are contributing to something larger, and thus you should bleed away your days working, in many cases, in China at least, in accordance with the idealized 996 working hour system, which is a common Chinese work schedule that either officially or practically requires that employees work from 9 a.m. till 9 p.m., six days a week, 
So 72 hours a week for money that will then buy them things that they're told they're supposed to want, like real estate, which is often required if one wants to be able to afford to get married and have kids, which is the next step goal of this philosophy. And things like fancy cars, expensive clothing, and other such display-related possessions that likewise make ascension to a type of middle class feasible within a system in which the middle class is still a relatively new thing and in which the rules of capitalism and how it interfaces with society are constantly shifting and changing, even as people scramble to play that game without overstepping and falling afoul of powerful corporations or the even more powerful, ostensibly communist, Chinese government. What I'd like to talk about today is a new manifestation of the Tengping lying flat movement and what it says about the so-called Gen Z demographic in China that is rapidly coming of age and filling out the lower tiers of the nation's labor pool. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled The Rise of Bai Lan, Why China's Frustrated Youth Are Ready to Let It Rot. Because of the demands placed on Chinese workers if they want to be able to afford to live up to commonly held social standards related to wealth and success, the lying flat concept almost always also means not having kids and opting out of the idea of pursuing a car or house or anything else associated with that version of success. In some cases, this means bowing out of a university education, too, because many Chinese teenagers and 20-somethings are pushed into attending school for high-paying careers by their parents or social expectations. And it also tends to mean aiming for less demanding work, leaving a hyper-competitive industry for something with fewer ladder-climbing incentives and day-climbing responsibilities. So going for a job in food service or remote customer support, rather than becoming a scientist or doctor or financial world professional of some kind. The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, which is the single party that runs China's single-party government system, didn't like this lying-flat concept, perceiving it as a threat to national well-being and progress. And thus, they removed posts mentioning it from online platforms, over which they have significant censorship capabilities. A discussion group on the topic that had about 10,000 participants on Chinese social media platform Douban was one of the first online nodes for this lying flat movement to be wiped out, alongside another one on a different social platform that had more than 200,000 users. A slew of companies and individuals selling Tangping-oriented products, like shirts and hats and bags, were next. Selling such products is now illegal in China. It's also essentially impossible to write the words Tang Ping, lying flat, or anything associated with that concept on the Chinese splinter of the internet these days. And Chinese officials have deployed their own paid online denizens to publish counter-narratives, encouraging young people to work hard and sacrifice so they can live up to the standards presented by the government, so they can afford to get some real estate, get married and have kids for the good of the country, for their beliefs and so they will be considered good and morally correct citizens. And to understand what this sort of effort looks like, 
Imagine that a significant portion of the most well-promoted people on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and TikTok suddenly started espousing government talking points and encouraging people to get high-paying jobs, get married and have kids so they can get a house and have the American dream. That's kind of what it looks like when the Chinese government pushes these sorts of messages, but promoting the Chinese dream instead. Alongside those social media efforts, wealthy Chinese people have done press tours in which they criticize young people who are lying flat before getting rich. And simultaneous government-orchestrated pushback campaigns cast those who choose to lie flat as dregs of society, worthless people, spreading harmful, toxic ideas, and or borderline enemies of the people, promoting lies and misinformation against the good and proper Chinese way of life. In the wake of all this pushback, a new phrase, Bai Lan, has started to replace Tang Ping in the Chinese Gen Z vernacular. Bai Lan means something like let it rot, and it's derived from a basketball term that refers to a strategic decision to pull back from pursuing some type of victory, because that victory is too difficult to achieve, and one will be better off if one instead takes that loss and then aims for a different type of victory instead. In the world of basketball, this often means purposefully losing a game so that your team will get a better draft pick, will be in a more favorable position to get better players for future games, essentially. And in the context of young Chinese people, it means giving up on the idea of purchasing real estate, competing in an increasingly brutal education and employment marketplace, and living up to social standards so that one can ultimately afford to get married and have kids. Rather than aiming for those goals, and likely failing, because the deck is stacked against them, the idea is that you set a different goal. Everything's falling apart? Okay, I'll rent for my entire life instead of trying to own a home. I will date and never get married, and I won't have kids because that's just not in the cards for me. I can't win playing that other game, the one that I'm being told I must play in order to be a good Chinese citizen. So instead, I will play a game that I can win and I will try to derive whatever happiness and fulfillment and pleasure I can from that way of living instead. This trend is being seen as the consequence of many factors in Chinese society. Among them, a hyper-competitiveness in school, the workplace, and the dating market. And that competitiveness is the consequence of a huge population, a top-down employment structure that favors the old guard that's been around for ages, and a baby culture that is fixated on having male babies. It's also the consequence of ever-increasing pressure to be a certain way and live up to certain moral and professional standards, all of which are set by an increasingly aging Chinese leadership. In other words, there is a group of mostly quite old people running things, wielding top-down government mechanisms that allow them to control essentially every aspect of society. And they are saying, look, here is the long-term plan, and here is how things are going to go, and you need to play your part in that strategy. But those plans don't always line up with the reality on the ground. And similar to how things worked back in the Soviet Union, where regional managers would often send false numbers and reports to their bosses further up the chain so they wouldn't be punished for messing with the central command structure's grand plans, this type of setup can lead to a false and at times way-off perception of how things are on the ground for those up at the top of the power pyramid who have not been near the ground any time recently. 
What Chinese leadership, including Xi Jinping, are focused on then is the grand geopolitical game board in which they're trying to outcompete, outpopulate, and outenrich their foes, including local Southeast Asian competitors, especially nearby, also sprawling India, and their Western competition, especially but not limited to the United States. They are also looking down the barrel of many significant issues, including but not limited to economic pressures, resulting in part from those flawed figures, like a seeming real estate balloon and public debt that is reportedly somewhere in the neighborhood of three to three and a half times their GDP, and ecological concerns, like immensely dirty and dangerous air, the devastation of huge swaths of their territory, devastated in order to produce raw materials and energy, and the building of an ever-larger military which, while reportedly still not capable of leveraging real power beyond the South China Sea, is expanding rapidly and potently in order to defend that highly traversed trade route and to potentially at some point militarily reclaim Taiwan, which it considers to be a wayward province, but which most of the rest of the world sees as at least semi-independent and in some cases totally independent, despite that implied and growing menace from its very close neighbor. Also quite worrying for the Chinese government, though, is the impending demographic crisis that it may already be seeing in its more concrete internal numbers, and which outside demographic bodies are saying will hit the country and all of its plans like a nuclear weapon in very short order. In this context, a demographic crisis means a demographic mismatch paired with a sweeping decline in birth rates. And the numbers on this matter are grim and obvious enough that even the Chinese state-run publication, Global Times, has suggested a population decline in the country that was previously estimated to begin in 2027 may start as soon as 2025, while other non-state-controlled publications have posited that the decline has already started. But the Chinese government is perhaps understandably concealing that for now as it is not a good look for a country that is partially powerful because of its vast working-age population. Now, to be clear, a decreasing birth rate is not necessarily a horrible thing. There are good arguments to be made that fewer people means more resources for those who are born and fewer resources consumed overall. That argument relies upon continued production at the existing scale, per capita though, in terms of food, services, energy, and so on. And such continuation would require a massive deployment of automation. Fewer people means fewer hands to work jobs, to grow food, to provide services. So lacking such automation, which no country in the world has deployed on that scale yet, all that wealth and value would also shrink as the population shrinks. This is something... All wealthy countries in the world are seeing, by the way, and the 20th century has taught us that as soon as nations become wealthy, almost always their populations begin to decline. So this is not an unusual thing that is happening in China. What is unusual about China's situation, though, is the mismatch in age groups. More specifically, there are a lot of old people in China, and not very many young people, at least relative to the number of old people. Over the past 30 years or so in particular, China has been blazing through the timeline of economic progress. And there are many reasons for this, but one is that they've focused on pulling people out of extreme poverty and moving them to urban areas where there's more work and where services can be centralized and away from their traditional far-flung super rural areas. 
This has been great for humanity in the sense that hundreds of millions of people who would have otherwise lived their lives in abject poverty are no longer stuck in such poverty because of the actions the Chinese government took, but less so in that more people with higher standards of living require more resources. This is part of why it's suspected that wealthier nations tend to have lower birth rates, by the way. More resources are spent on fewer people in such countries, basically. China's rapid progress from immensely poor to quite wealthy means that they've got an elderly population that remembers what it was like under Mao, when things were really bad and overpopulation seemed like a real issue for the burgeoning communist state in the post-World War II era, and who also saw the advent of the country's one-child policy, which led to a significant imbalance in gender demographics, leaning heavily toward traditionally favored male children followed in turn by the loosening of that policy, which has now evolved into a government-led push to get families to have more children, up to three apiece, in order to keep their population balanced. And those new efforts, by all indications, are not doing much good. Because of how that sequence of events has played out, and how rapidly the country's fortunes have changed, there are a lot more middle-aged and older people in China than younger people. That means in a population that was tallied at 1.41 billion people in 2020, nearly 20% of those people are 60 years old or older, and nearly 14% are over 65 years old. And this is a country with a retirement age of 60 for men and between 50 and 55 for women, depending on their industry, which is way lower than the global average of 65. That low retirement age made sense back in the day when life expectancy in China was less than 50. That's when this retirement age was established in 1951. So back then, it seemed like a pretty brutal setup. But today, life expectancy in China is 77. So there's a huge cadre of people living in China, more than a fifth of the population, that is retired and thus benefiting from social services, and who thus need to be served by the economy, taken care of as they age, rather than contributing to it. The government has several times floated the idea of raising the retirement age, but that went about as well as you might expect. It's been so unpopular up till this point that they've never pulled the trigger. They may need to at some point, though, as the state pension fund reported its first annual deficit in 2020, and pension systems in China that keep retired people housed and able to eat are funded by contributions made by current employees into the system. So if there are fewer people in the pipeline entering the workforce and paying into that system, that system could fall apart in relatively short order. China's birth rate was already declining before the COVID-19 pandemic upended a lot of social norms and support systems, but it fell further by just under 30% between 2019 and 2021, marking the largest two-year decline in birth rates in the country since the Great Famine of 1959 to 1961. An average fertility rate of 2.1 children per woman is required to hit what's called the replacement rate of a society. So just over two kids per woman on average are required to balance out the number of people who die. That's the rate at which a population stays steady, not growing and not declining. China's fertility rate, depending on which numbers you use, is somewhere between 1.3 in 2020 and 1.15 in 2021. 
give or take several tenths of a percentage point. And that's in the wake of about 15 years of below replacement rate births, averaging around 1.6 to 1.7 since 1994. Now, what that means in practice is that more people are dying than are being born, and there are a whole lot more people in their 20s and older than there are people younger than 20, which suggests that in short order, as those 20-somethings move up the career ladder, there will not be enough people in society to do the labor, work the food service jobs, and generally keep the lower rungs of the economy steadily moving upward as they age, ticking along properly. In some countries, the government could help solve this issue by allowing more immigration. But China, similar to many other Asian nations, is not big on immigration, historically and culturally. There's a big racial component to this, which in some cases, according to some cultural analysts, borders on or dives directly into the realm of racism. But it's also just culturally unusual for the region. It's not something that they know how to do, and it's not something they're generally comfortable with. Thus, they are a lot more limited in this regard than some other nations, though they have tried their hand at it a little bit more than usual recently via their Belt and Road initiatives, which allows a lot more African workers from countries that they've made infrastructure deals with into the country to work some of those lower-tiered jobs. So we will see how that goes. That could be one way out of this mess for China if they really lean into the concept, though history would seem to be weighed against them in that regard at the moment. The pandemic also amplified a steady decrease in marriage rates, down 12%. And though there are many government-funded programs, so-called baby bonuses, aimed at making marriage and baby having more economically viable for more people, younger people in particular, even those not fully opting out of the system, lying flat or letting it rot style, have been deciding to instead stay single and date, and enjoy the benefits, economic and otherwise, of not spending all of that money and time on the more traditional kid-having life path. Or maybe just having one kid instead of the necessary to hit the replacement rate, 2.1 children apiece, which again is something that you see in overall wealthier nations, so this is not unusual, but it is something that's hitting China particularly hard. All of this demographic turmoil is impacting the Chinese Gen Z generation's perspective in that it's reinforcing a general sense that things are nosediving rather than headed toward an endless period of improvement and wealth, which is not something that the Chinese government has had to deal with in a long while, as things have generally gotten better in China a couple generations now, and significantly so. And this progress muffling change has led to a lot of questions from young people about why they should trust a seemingly unstable, maybe even soon-to-be-crumbling system, why they should invest their youthful years in that system, give up most of their lives to keep a dying machine chugging along a little longer, and why they should trust that that system will help them be more fulfilled in the first place. As many people higher up the ladder, many of their older relatives and peers seem to be drained and miserable and dreading what comes next, not happy and enjoying life, and being celebrated by society for all their sacrifices, as promised. Current projections show China's population plummeting to something like 587 million by the year 2100, which would be far less than half, a bit more than a third of the 1.41 billion it has today and lower than it was four decades ago, before it really started taking off as a global economic powerhouse. 
It's become a common question in economic and geopolitical circles whether China will grow old before it grows rich and powerful. The idea being that it could spin things up fast enough so that it can sustainably support its massive population by using that population properly to churn out more infrastructure and widgets and military potency, allowing it to reinforce and stabilize an otherwise too tall and teetering tower that they've built too quickly. These demographic numbers suggest that an aging population makes getting wealthy enough and powerful enough before it gets too old a lot less likely, as social services and a mismatch of age demographics will possibly drain the system before it becomes wealthy and powerful enough to put those structures in place. These youth movements, similar to movements that we've seen elsewhere around the world over the centuries, may be a consequence of this increasingly widespread perception of less good outcomes then, but also because of the ways of seeing things and behaviors that they inspire and encourage make such outcomes more likely. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Eating to Extinction, The World's Rarest Foods, and Why We Need to Save Them, by Dan Saladino. This is a fun book written by a BBC food journalist, and it's about folks and industries that are involved in the cultivation and preservation of different foods that are under threat, in some cases because they're disappearing from the planet, in other cases because they're being elbowed out by more refined versions, more processed versions of the same. It also talks about foods that just aren't well-known, despite being very good foods for their purposes in terms of their health benefits, their nutritional benefits, but which maybe do not travel well, they're not easy to preserve, or their flavors are a bit off for the palates of most modern international consumers. There's a good bit of discussion about how we might eat that's a bit different than how we eat today, how our food industries might operate differently, and a lot of the history of why different foods become common and and more corporatized, more profitable than other sorts of foods, and consequently, why our diets look the way that they do today. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Eating to Extinction by Dan Saladino. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other projects at understandery.com. And you can find my newest project, which is focused on climate-related news, at climatehappenings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.